Welcome to our second episode of Illuminative On Air. I'm Monica Brain, the series producer. We've got a great show for you today. Reporter Allison Herrera brings you a look at how Native artists are faring during the pandemic. Also, Janice Schmeeding checks in with 8th Generation, the Native-owned apparel and blanket company that had to close their Pike's Place store in Seattle amid COVID-19 concerns. Jenna also brings you a conversation with the Adopt an Elder program on the Navajo Nation and how they're adjusting to the COVID-19 regulations. But first, here's Crystal Echohawk, the executive director of Illuminative. She had a conversation with the editor of Indian Country Today, Mark Trahan. It starts off with a critical piece of the COVID-19 crisis, data. That is when you figure out how to measure the key pieces, how you measure population. And we know with Indian country that that's a real issue. And how it plays out in the pandemic is really interesting. Because, for example, and we'll just take two, there are several ways to count Indian country. But two of them are the Indian Health Service population. And that's about 2.5 million. Then there's the user population, which is about 1.6 million. And the difference of those two in terms of infection rates is 0.8 tenths of 1% versus 1.2%. So you can see it's a big difference. I think why we want to measure is to be able to know how fast it's spreading and where. We're soon going to be at the point where right now your report infections rates is kind of bad news, that this is really terrible. But we know that over the course of this, we're going to have to get much higher infection rates because that's when people will start producing antibodies to fight off the disease themselves. And that would be in the range of 40%. And you can see no matter what number you use, we're probably between a half a percent and a half, one and a half percent. So to go from there to one to 40 is really a big jump. Is there anything that you can just talk to us about just new insights into where some of those hot spots are, or just some of the trends within the data as well? Yeah, and, and this really started off as a, a necessity. Um, when this started, we just didn't feel like we were getting the right kind of data from Indian Health Service. Uh, what they do is good. I don't want to make it sound like I'm saying that they're not important, <laughs> but the way they collect information is basically by their government structure. So they'll tell you what area office has how many cases rather than what tribe. And we really wanted to have it on the tribal level so that we could take a look at it and see who's being impacted. And I'll give you an example of how the way IHS collects data is a problem is if somebody gets sick at Hopi, that's counted as Phoenix area. If they get sick a couple miles away on the Navajo Nation, that's counted as Navajo area. So we wanted to come up with a way to look at it more on a tribal level. And I have to say that tribes have just been amazing. They've been giving us the data directly, often a couple days before they give it to IHS. And it's basically allowed us to create this uh, database. We actually are in the process now of hopefully sharing this database with some other providers. We really don't want to be in the data collection business. And our goal is just basically two things. One, to get the information out in real time. But two, to have it be transparent. One of the things we do is we put all our spreadsheets online, basically our homework. And so we allow people to go in and look for that and see if they can sort the data a different way and come up with things. One of the pieces of data that we really want to start getting into is the testing rate. And the way the World Health Organization measures that is by um, how many tests per million. With only Indian country having uh, 
around two and a half million, that's not very going to be a very big number. So we're probably going to come up with a different way that we measure uh, how many tests go out in Indian country. A couple of researchers at UCLA took our data and applied it to the American Community Survey, which is one of the denominators people use, and found that so far the infection rate in Indian country is about 10 times that of other um, population groups. What's really interesting is they tested their data by pulling out both Navajo and Oklahoma because they didn't want those two to be outliers. And when they did that, they found that the data was still representative, which I think is uh, a quality that makes it really useful. And so to pivot then, uh, what are some of the other big stories that you're tracking in terms of uh, economic impact in Indian country, sort of political updates? All of these stories are moving so fast that everything changes really in the blink of an eye. I think in a way, this is kind of what our ancestors went through, and I don't want to overstate this, but I think it's worth thinking about with the end of the Mastodon, that you had this part of the economy that was humming along and doing really well. One large animal kill could basically feed a tribe for quite a while. And in the blink of an eye, they went away. And suddenly the people had to go through this really radical transformation from top to bottom. And I don't know that it's going to be that dramatic, but it is. Um, things that we've been able to take for granted for at least the last 100 years just won't be the case anymore. I mean, I had to laugh when I read uh, a lot of cities and counties that are starting to open up are taking people's temperature. And that looks good. It's great theatrics, but it only counts if they're actually sick. And we know that 25% of COVID-19 patients don't get sick ever. The other ones might be carrying the um, infection around for a week before they ever show any symptoms. So taking your temperature is not going to do anything in those cases, which is about a third of the patients. I was asked to give a talk about kind of big sky thinking. And I talked about how do tribes prepare for the end of the United States. And at the time, it probably sounded really crazy. But... I don't know that that's the craziest thing in the world anymore when you look at, one, how quickly the Congress is going out of its resources. Um, at some point, appropriating money that they are borrowing is not going to be sustainable. When that point is, there's a theory in economics called the lender of last resort. And as long as you have that lender of last resort, you can keep things going during a really bad time. But at some point, if there is no lender of last resort, that's when things start to really get bad. And Congress went through uh, almost $2 trillion last week, and it's not nearly enough. And that shows you the scope of this problem. So where this will hit with Indian country is we're going to try to restart things. But in communities where there's already a serious unemployment problem, how do you then restart it in a way that brings people into the job force again? When you can't gather in the same way, when you can't exchange goods the same way, when you can't feed people the same way, just think of how many buffets there are in Indian country. And what if we're in a world where you can never have a buffet ever again? How does that change society from top to bottom, I think is going to be a really in question. How do you build something new? One thing I've been waiting for is when the first tribal casino says we're going to go online and recreate something and dare the United States to stop it. Exactly. Are you hearing anything out there in terms of how tribes are entering into this debate about 
when to reopen. I mean, this is obviously the huge dominant conversation right now. So many mixed messages from local mayors to governors to from the federal government. Um, you know, there's not a, a, a one cohesive response. Or, or what are you hearing out in Indian country from tribal leaders? It really runs the range. There's some tribes that are talking about sooner rather than later. And in states where uh, other activities are proceeding, um, that's certainly been part of the conversation. But then again, that goes to the changed parameters. Even if you are able to open, that doesn't mean you're going to fill the place. And if you can't fill the place, can you sustain the employment level? Can you sustain the debt load? Can you sustain the operations that were there before? And I think that's when it raises all kinds of questions about what this looks like a year from now or two years from now. Up next, Allison Herrera takes a look at how cancellations have a rippling economic effect on artists and small businesses across Indian country. Indigenous artists and makers are some of the hardest hit as their livelihoods hang in the balance. She spoke with one artist who's waiting it out and trying to make it work in the face of all the uncertainty. Leah Matafrawa remembers getting the first of many emails canceling an event she hoped to exhibit and sell her abalone earrings and dentellium necklaces. It was the first of five events where she would earn a large part of her income for the rest of the year. But because of the pandemic, it was canceled. As someone that's self-employed, it's difficult. You don't have the same safety net because, you know, you can't apply for unemployment. Traditionally, you can't apply for unemployment. Mata Frawa said it just snowballed from there. She's self-employed and has been making and selling jewelry since the last recession in 2009. So she's used to challenges. This time, she says, it's totally different. The unemployment wasn't as widespread as this. So at least there was some people still buying you know, people that had uh, jobs still. Mata Frawa is Yaktichu Tichu Yaktahini Chumash and is one of thousands of indigenous artists impacted by the closures, cancellations, and postponement of events, shows, and gatherings that have rippled across Indian country. Many are now scrambling to make ends meet amid an ever-changing medical crisis that makes it even harder to plan for the future. In early March, the World Health Organization declared a global pandemic. Gathering of Nations canceled their annual powwow, Denver March announced they would not be holding their events, and the Southwestern Association of Indian Arts, or SWAYA, said they would not be holding their annual Indian market in Santa Fe, New Mexico this year. A lot of artists will say that they make anywhere from 50% to up to 100% of their annual income at Indian Market. That's Swaya's PR and marketing director, Amanda Crocker. She says cancellations don't just affect the artists. Northern New Mexico benefits too. In total, Indian Market brings in $165 million. That's hotels, restaurants, and bars that all benefit from the event. Swaya's bottom line will also take a hit because they rely on booth fees from Indian Market to make up part of their budget. 
Crocker says that even if they did have a market this year, the economy is in rough shape right now, and that would affect the artists in another way. How many will be able to be um, in a position to purchase art mm-hmm. with, the, with the stock market the way it is? So it's, it's multi-layered. Um, we can't just look at whether or not from a public health standpoint we can have the market, but whether or not it would be a market that serves the artist well. Lakuta Ojibwe painter Jim Denemy says his work has definitely taken a hit. Last year and the early part of 2020 were tremendous for Denemy. He received the McKnight Distinguished Artist Award in Minneapolis, as well as landing several international exhibitions and sales. But now? Well, I think my work's been affected just about like everybody has experienced. So far, four out of five my scheduled exhibitions for the year have been postponed. But um, yeah, my sales have stopped. Things have just kind of dried up for me at the moment. Denemy says he's in okay shape right now and managed to make a sale that will carry him through the next few months. He's been working, but he says it's been hard. One of my Facebook friends termed it um, it's like trying to paint a masterpiece while you're flying on a plane going through terrible turbulence. In early March, Matafragua just finished exhibiting some of her dance dresses and regalia at the Heard Museum's Indian Market in Phoenix, one of the last shows that managed to go on before the pandemic. Matafragua says this market wasn't as well attended as in previous years, and she didn't sell as many pieces as she hoped. She knew she would be able to make it up at a museum show in Vermont until that was canceled also. Um, In terms of climate change, which was already one financial impact to my work, right? So I've already, I'm like trying to mitigate that. And then this happens. So it's just been difficult to get I guess, on solid footing. Swaya will unveil plans for a virtual Indian market in the coming weeks. The main component of it will be an e-commerce platform that connects Swaya artists with buyers. But other things will make it interactive, educational, and fun. Gathering of Nations also went online. During the last weekend in April, they held a virtual market and powwow. Mata Frawa says she's not sure how her work will change once the pandemic ends and people are allowed to go back out into public life. She's looking to file for unemployment as a self-employed artist and says she's pretty resourceful and will try to make things work. I think at this time you just have to be out there and paying attention to, you know, what's going on so that, yeah, you can be, um, you know, you can find out what what's available, what's not available. She just celebrated a birthday and posted on Facebook that she felt lucky to be with family, have food, and a place to live. But she's always looking towards the future. For Illuminative Podcast, I'm Allison Herrera. What's up, everyone? My name is Jana Schmeeding. I'm Minakanju Lakota, and I'm the host of the Woman of Size podcast. In the next two segments, I wanted to amplify a couple of businesses that are doing incredible work to support their local Native communities during this coronavirus pandemic. Here are my interviews with Serene Lawrence of the Seattle-based Indigenous retailer, 8th Generation, and CJ Robb of the Adopt an Elder program. It's pretty incredible to see how the Indigenous Arts Clan is coming together to support our Native communities during the coronavirus pandemic. 
Earlier this month, we heard about our relatives in Seattle at the store Eighth Generation going above and beyond to ensure that their local frontline health workers had the crucial supplies needed to protect themselves and their people. You know what? Let's hear it for... My name is Serene Lawrence. I am the senior project manager at Eighth Generation, and I am Ojibwe and Hopi. Serene, hi, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing really well. Thank you. Um, first, I just want to talk about Eighth Generation, the store itself. I live mm-hmm. personally in a constant state of fear that I will spend all of my money on Eighth Gen products. <laughs> <laughs> They're amazing. <laughs> um, tell me about the store and, and the store's connection to the intertribal community in Seattle and globally. Absolutely. So um, the cool thing about Eighth Generation is that we have a really unique story. We were founded as a company by a Native artist named Louis Gong. He's our founder and CEO. Um, He wanted to identify kind of the gaps in the consumer market where Native artists could participate more on an equal playing field. So as you may see, there's an abundance of, you know, native designs on products out there in the market. But what he realized was very few native artists had the opportunity to be involved or to collaborate on those items. And they were missing, you know, a big opportunity. And so what we decided to do was, you know, learn how to market and create our own products And as Louis started that journey, he wanted to reach out and involve other Native artists that he knew were very talented um, and involve them in that process, mentor them about how to develop products um, and create their own businesses. So that was kind of the foundation of the company. And as he began to work with more Native artists from around the nation, our product selection kept on growing and growing until we were fortunate enough to be able to open up our store at Pike Place Market in downtown Seattle. And that was very exciting for us because before Eighth Generation was at Pike Place Market, there was no other Native-owned business in the market. Um, So that was really exciting. And so, yeah, it's been a wild journey. And now we are actually owned by the Snoqualmie tribe And it's been through a lot of hard work by both Louis and our team and the artists that we've been able to get to where we are. Amazing. I love that. Um, Also, we'll talk about this a little bit later, um, but we as buyers of uh, Native art, we can purchase things in your brick and mortar in Pike Place. I mean, we can't right now. We cannot Mm -hmm. right now, but you have an online store as well. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Um, We actually very much believe that it's important for artists to be online and accessible to a worldwide audience. So eighth generation, when Louis was just beginning the company, he worked really hard to set up a website to be able to sell. First, it was his hand-painted cultural art on shoes, and then it grew into more products, and then it grew to involve the other artists as well. And in conjunction with a lot of speaking workshops and youth workshops in our communities, Louis gained the capital to be able to open up 
a brick and mortar store at Pike Place Market, which was so exciting. And unfortunately, it's true we did have to temporarily close the store um, in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, But we do plan to reopen it as soon as we can. Amazing. And you, Serene, are the senior project manager at 8th Generation. Can you tell me what your role sort of looks like in the company normally? Yeah, absolutely. So I've been involved in pretty much all aspects of the company from running the store at Pike Place Market to quality checking all of our wool blankets to shipping out orders worldwide, also to sourcing Uh, and developing new products on behalf of 8th Generation. So for example, I feel very blessed to be able to work with the leadership at 8th Generation as well as artists from around the country to develop new products under the 8th Generation brand and also encourage those artists to empower themselves and become art entrepreneurs. How amazing and fun. I mean, that just sounds like a wonderful job. Yes, we're definitely very blessed, and I feel very blessed. So on February 29th, Washington State had its first confirmed death from coronavirus. Tell me the story of how this drove you and your team at 8th Generation into action. We're very aware of the community needs as well as the news. When we heard about the first death in Washington state, of course, we were really concerned. And the number of infected or potentially infected cases kept on rising. It was a really troubling and concerning time for all small businesses in Seattle, but us as well. Basically, immediately we decided that we wanted to help in some way. So our staff gathered to have a big discussion about ways we could help our community throughout the unforeseeable length of time that this pandemic might be occurring. So what we decided to do was to leverage our connections with suppliers all over the globe to find and locate PPE and then work with them to import it here to Seattle. And what were kind of the steps and also the hurdles into um, making this happen? Well, uh, there were many steps and it took, I would say, at least a couple of weeks for us to be able to find a place that we could get PPE from. As you may know, a lot of the world's PPE equipment is produced overseas. Mm -hmm. And although we work with a lot of suppliers and businesses locally and nationwide, we also have a lot of connections with overseas suppliers at which point we began to ask around. My business manager and I reached out to our connections overseas about this epidemic that was happening. As you can imagine, the cases were rising here and there was a sense of urgency to do anything that we could to give back to the community. So our contacts would put us in connection with other contacts that we hadn't known about before. And it was a lot of back and forth about you know, what our community needs are, getting introduced to all the standards of the FDA, a lot of different information that we had to learn and then quickly process and communicate as well to our connections. It was a long process. I would say that we would work from morning until night, just having conversations with people about what we needed, what was available and what we could have access to during this time. 
every day the quantities and the supplies were dwindling. So it was definitely a matter of urgency to get this done. And you were able to put this coordinated effort together in a matter of two weeks. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. Just like I had said, the amount of cases in the community was growing at such a fast rate. And we were very aware that there were a lot of medical clinics around Seattle that were experienced a shortage of PPE, including a lot of our close relatives in the Native community around Seattle. So what we did was we identified those needs of our community members, tried to find that PPE, and then worked really hard to be able to get it here as quickly as possible. There was a lot of information to digest and communicate, a lot of questions thrown back at us. So it was a huge effort that our team all collaborated in. Incredible. When I read, you know, researched the numbers around what your efforts had produced, I found that it was 4,095 masks, 600 surgical masks, and 300 face shields. And those went directly to the Seattle Indian Health Board. Is that correct? Yes. We have had a relationship with the Seattle Indian Health Board for at least 20 years. Our CEO and founder, Louis Gong, used to work there when he first moved to Seattle, and that was before he had started Eighth Generation. So we knew a lot of healthcare providers and the administration there, and we just think the Seattle Indian Health Board is one of the national leading clinics to serve the American Indian community, and they just set a great example. And so we knew that their team was working really hard as well as putting themselves and their staff at some risk to be able to meet the community needs, to test people and to take care of people. We really appreciate that, as well as the fact that a lot of our staff personally go to the Seattle Indian Health Board for our medical care. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it really inspired us to just do what we could. So we kind of took it day by day. I would say that I spent many late nights, you know, locating this PPE and figuring out all the logistics of quantities and you know, payments. And there was a lot of things that needed to be taken care of before it could actually arrive here. And we were so grateful that it actually did come to fruition in under two weeks. What an amazing story. I know that now that we're in shelter in place and we're experiencing social distancing, a lot of small businesses are hurting. But it's so courageous that eighth generation still found it important despite this, to support local Native frontline workers. I imagine that this is kind of shaping the way that the community sees you. Um, We would hope so. However, it's this isn't just isolated to one event of giving back. Even though our company has only officially been around uh, since 2008, Louis, our founder, has been very involved in the Native community around here in terms of, you know, participating in community events, facilitating youth workshops, supporting, you know, through sponsorships, different programs or events. And then once we started Eighth Generation, our whole team came together and it's been a part of our teachings and where we come from to, of course, take care of our community. You know, most of our staff are Native, and so we were raised with these teachings to give back. And that goes from our leadership on down. 
I think that's something that makes eighth generation kind of unique. And so over the years uh, that we have all been operating as a staff at eighth generation, we have given back so much more, I think, than we can even keep in our minds just financially through donations of our products and then also just like big financial donations, uh, just giving back in multiple ways than just this one instance. So, you know, we just do that more so just because that's who we are and that's what we care about. This is how we were raised. But we certainly do hope that, you know, we our efforts are appreciated because we appreciate our community. When I see this happening with eighth generation, I see it as a a really adept model for how we should be functioning or how we could be functioning as native communities, you know, really localizing our efforts and supporting our communities and being involved on a more active level than we are kind of raised to be in our colonized experiences. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that we hope that by donating what we could for our medical providers will help inspire other businesses and organizations to do what they can to help their community. And, you know, that being said, we have been enjoying to learn about other small businesses who are values-based, like eighth generation, stepping up during this pandemic to find ways to help their community. So it's been almost a very inspiring time as well, despite the hardships. Absolutely. Serene, what can we do as a larger Native community across Turtle Island to support 8th Generation more directly right now? So what's really wonderful is that there are plenty of free ways that you can support small businesses like 8th Generation. For example, if you've ever interacted with our products or visited our store, we'd appreciate, you know, a nice review on Yelp or Google you know, maybe sharing about a product that you bought from us with your social media networks and just kind of exposing people to what we're doing. Those are some free ways that you can support small businesses. And then, of course, you know, we're also saying to people that this is a very challenging time for a lot of businesses. So if consumers wanted to shop locally, that would be so appreciated by a lot of hardworking people in the small business industry. I'm finally going to have to just go on the website and buy that beach towel that I've been wanting. (laughs) Fingers crossed I'll be able to use it at the actual beach sometime this year. (laughs) I know. This is the importance of us social distancing. So we all are hoping that we can have a good summer as well. Well, Serene, thank you so much for talking to me today. And also thank you to the team at 8th Generation um, for the work that you have all been doing for Seattle's Native community as well as the global Native community. Oh, no problem. I really appreciate you taking time and reaching out to me. Thanks so much. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. If you want to thank the 8th Generation crew more directly, go to 8thGeneration.com and make a purchase. Heck, make a few purchases. Pony up. <laughs> As many in Indian country can attest, the danger of COVID-19 making its way onto reservations and ancestral homelands has become real and visceral. With a disease that directly attacks our elder population, 
the keepers of our stories, our histories, and our languages. Across Turtle Island, we're searching for creative ways to ensure that our elders have access to basic needs during these crucial shelter-in-place periods. I reached out to a 35-year-old volunteer-based organization that works directly with the Navajo Nation, a nation that has now seen over 1,300 positive COVID-19 cases. The Adopt-A-Native Elder Program is one org that can make sure our donations go directly to Navajo elders. I am CJ Robb. I'm the Assistant Director of the Adopt-A-Native Elder Program, um, and I've been working, helping to serve the elders on the Navajo Reservation for 10 years. So CJ, tell me a little bit about the Adopt-An-Elder program just generally. So our program was founded 36 years ago by Linda Myers, who's still our executive director. And she founded the program um, during the Navajo Hopi land dispute as the elders in Big Mountain and Black Mesa were being forced off of their land and removed from their ancestral homelands. She was trying to just supply humanitarian relief food, medical supplies, clothing to the elders in that area. And as that went on, the need for the elders really became obvious. You know, these these traditional Navajo elders didn't really move into mainstream America. They, they practice traditional ceremony. Many of them only speak Navajo. They dress traditionally. And so they, they didn't fit the kind of American view of elder care, you know, forcing them off of their ancestral homeland and into a nursing home facility doesn't fit their views for their life. It doesn't fit their experiences through their lives. And so the program kind of branched out into an elder support network, providing families the food, basic medical supplies, incontinent supplies, and clothing that they needed to help their elders age in place at home on their homelands. And we've we've grown over the last 36 years. You know, it started with about a dozen elders. Now we have 720 elders spread out across the Navajo reservation, all over the age of 75. Our oldest elder right now is uh, 105, I believe. Mm. And and so we have sponsors all around the world that adopt an elder and support them by paying for their food boxes that we deliver. We are generally able to deliver food boxes twice a year in the spring and the fall. And that's meant to line up with planting and harvest season. So it kind of fits into this very traditional native way of life. And so this spring we were planning on delivering about 396,000 pounds of assistance, mainly food, but also you know lots of medical supplies and clothing. And that's obviously all on hold from COVID-19. So what we're trying to do right now is without exposing the elders to the virus, without traveling to the reservation, which is impossible right now, we can't get volunteers who are willing to travel. Mm -hmm. And so we're trying to mail food certificates down to the families so that they're able to go to the store, shop for the supplies that they need um, and get assistance from us that way. And um, correct me if I'm wrong, but it looks like there have been some partnerships formed with local grocery stores or places that are providing that are, you know, kind of dotted throughout the reservation and are helping to deliver for those people who are unable to leave their homes supplies to people in their homes. Is that correct? That is correct. So there we have been working with um, Bash's Grocery Stores, which is a local Arizona grocery store 
the only real grocery store that exists actually on the Navajo reservation. So we're, we're getting the food certificates through them. Um, we've worked with them as they've um, tried to institute elder specific shopping hours to kind of protect the elders so that they can get in and out of the stores. We're working with them right now to try and get the food certificates so that family members can shop for their elder without their elder being present. And then there's also some local community groups that are doing small-scale food delivery, trying to reach out to these elders, make sure that they're staying at home and staying safe and taking their health seriously. Awesome. That's so great to hear. Um, Tell me, CJ, what can listeners do to donate or to support this program and, you know, as well as just the elders on the Navajo Nation? We accept all kinds of help. You know, we, we still plan to be delivering food as soon as we're able to, and it's responsible to do so. We're packed for these food runs. So as soon as the restrictions are lifted and it's safe to travel to the reservation, we'll need volunteers to help carry food down and deliver food. You can sign up to do that through our website, which is www.alelder.org. Um, you can also donate through the website. Our biggest fundraising efforts right now are going towards the food certificates, and you can donate for that online. In the last month, we've sent about $120,000 worth of food certificates down to our 720 elders, and we're trying to keep that going every month until the restrictions are lifted, until it's safe for them to go out and we're able to actually deliver physical supplies to them. If you're interested in adopting an elder and the long-term commitment of supporting an elder, you can adopt through our website also. And then there's also other great things you can do. We support a lot of traditional Navajo weavers. So their rugs are featured online. So if you're looking for a great piece of art for your home, you can purchase directly through our website. And 100% of the proceeds from those sales go back to the weaver who wove the rug. It's one of the ways that our elders help support themselves and we try to give them a market so that they can do that. And if maybe, you know, you can't donate for a food certificate or you don't want the long-term commitment of supporting an elder, one thing you can do is order a yarn bundle. It's $40. It goes down to one of the traditional weavers and it'll help them weave a rug that then they can sell to help support their family also. Thank you so much uh, for taking time out to talk to me today, CJ. And thank you so much to your organization for um, everything that you're doing for our very precious and important elders in the Navajo Nation. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Best friend Don't be afraid I'll be right here To help show you Thank you for listening to episode two of Illuminative On Air. If you like what you heard today, please consider giving us five stars and reviewing us in Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts. This episode was produced by Allison Herrera, Jana Schmieding, and Crystal Echohawk. Our executive producer is Heather Ray. I'm the series producer, and Linking Cornshucker is our associate producer. Sound engineering is by Paul Vitolich. Music from Samantha Crane, Torn Jacobs, and Superman. This podcast would not be possible without the support from the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation, the Shakopee Mitawakatan Sioux Community, and the Macy Family Foundation. I want to let you know about Illuminative's new initiative called Warrior Up. 
What Your Up brings Native artists, influencers, and most importantly, you, to spread the word about COVID-19. Now, more than ever, is the time to fight for visibility of Native peoples, to care for our communities, and to ensure Native peoples are seen, heard, and included in the solutions and conversations about this public health emergency. Visit Illuminatives.org to learn more. And finally, please take care, everyone. Be kind to each other, protect your elders, and we'll see you next time. Hey, yo, what? Hey, yo, what?